Good morning, good day, good evening, good night, whatever time it is you're joining us again for another podcast episode of All Things First Aid. I'm your host, Jay. I know it's been a while. I, uh, like everything else, we get carried away with work, life, family, and before you know it, the weeks turn into months, and, uh, and, but I'm here today, so today's episode is, um, a little bit softer in the sense that uh, these are soft skills. I can't teach you soft skills. These are skills that you either have or you would need to learn how to acquire them. Has nothing to do with putting a bandage on. Has absolutely nothing to do with your assessment. It has to do with what companies like to call non-teachable skills such as being empathetic and listening, using your nonverbal communications as, as picking up cues or using your, your own nonverbal communication to reflect and relay uh, to the casualty and other bystanders that you're listening and that you're being nonjudgmental. Uh, so these are skills that for some people they've learned the hard way. Uh, other people, it comes natural to to learn these soft skills um, so today is going to be a little bit different a little bit off the beaten path uh, i'm going to combine this with some mental health of as a responder talk about uh, critical incident stress management SISM. Uh, touch briefly on post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd uh, recognizing some of the signs and symptoms and uh, what you as a uh, either lay rescuer or professional. And when I say professional, it could be paid or volunteer. Um, so that could be firefighting, search and rescue, could be any number of sorts of things, lifeguarding. Anywhere that your day-to-day um, roles, you could see traumatic events. So, so let's start off with a little bit of the interpersonal communication skills. This one here, it's not as easy to talk about as as one would think. I don't have a degree in psychology, but I do have a degree in hard knocks and life experience. Uh, In my younger days, uh, it did not come naturally, but as my career developed and um, maturity developed, my interpersonal communication skills um, were a little bit easier to obtain let's put it that way so and going with that goal of nonverbal and verbal communication skills uh, we need to be aware of different language barriers uh, cultural and religious differences Um, we may not always agree on someone's decision for either refusal of care or refusal of a certain person to give the care based off of religious or cultural reasons uh, we're not here to judge we're here to give the best care that we can to this individual until advanced medical care arrives or if you are the advanced medical care until you um, transfer care over to a receiving facility okay it can be really easy to be offended if you're dealing with someone of a different cultural belief that doesn't want uh, let's say a male working on uh, on them as a casualty because they may be female of a different culture where 
it's taboo to have a strange male uh, touch them, even as simple as checking a pulse or blood pressure. Um, those times like this, if it's not life-threatening and they're able to give you other information, just document what you could do and document that the casualty uh, did not want to have uh, you assess them for cultural or religious uh, beliefs. If at all possible, and there's a female uh, partner that can do these skills for you and are competent and trained in those skills, by all means, uh, we, we can always adapt on the fly for certain things. And, and this kind of goes back to what I said uh, uh, several podcasts earlier about special populations. And, and in that episode, I specifically referred to someone with um, different spectrum um, balances so uh, autism, Asperger's, things like that, where their stranger danger is extremely high. And if it's not life-threatening, then let, by all means, let the caregiver do that kind of a care. But in today's episode, we're basically we're talking about how to be non-judgmental, how to listen empathetically. You know, we can't sympathize, because those are two different words, but we can empathize with the person's need or their situation um, and if you're verbally saying yes I agree with you and yes I'm here for you but your arms are crossed they've read that you're contradicting yourself you your nonverbal skills your nonverbal um, communication speaks louder than your verbal communication please do keep that in mind be open in your uh, body language be neutral in your body language. Making eye contact is, in North America, seen as being professional. In some cultures around the world, uh, prolonged eye contact can, can be a form of intimidation. Uh, gentle touching here in North America on the shoulder is seen as being giving support. Other places around the world, it could be seen as a sign of invasion of personal space. Uh, I don't claim to be a specialist in all the different cultures around the world. Just uh, bounce on the ones that I'm familiar with. In your career as a either volunteer rescuer, semi-professional rescuer, paid professional rescuer, however you want to cut it, you are going to most likely deal with death and dying. There's, there's um, no way around it. If you haven't, as a professional or volunteer rescuer, dealt with death or dying, it unfortunately is part of the uh, part of the the job, and it's not always as easy to deal with uh, for some people. When I uh, first started nursing back in the mid '90s. My first patient died, and I went to my charge nurse, as you know, young nurses would do, and um, wasn't very supportive, uh, basically was told, you just get accustomed to it. And I later found out that's very wrong. You don't get it. When you get accustomed to watching people die, it's time to move on and get out of that profession because you've gone too cold and callous. I think what that charge nurse meant to convey, and that's only me thinking now back on it, was that you learn to adapt and, and, and work, work through that. Um, because there are, 
depending on your role as a rescuer or even as a first aider that only has maybe a one or a five or a 10 day course, uh, that is very stressful for some people. And the, uh, it's, not only is it stressful, but it's also normal to be stressful about seeing someone die or having someone take their last breath in front of you. It uh, mentally and emotionally can take its toll. It might not be that day or that week. It could be several weeks or a month later. Um, research has recognized that individuals who provide emergency care can and do experience high levels of stress. Okay, So whether they're multiple patients, children, or failed resuscitations, um, these are very stressful times. In our BLS courses here in North America and when I had taken some ACLS courses back in the 90s and 2000s. We always had a post-debrief. We weren't there to, to lay blame. It was basically reviewing what was done correctly. Um, time to ask questions during a post-debrief. The person who rounds up the debrief could be the physician in charge or the nurse practitioner in charge. Or it very well could be a social worker that's moderating the meeting. Um, so the, that's your time to ask questions uh, is afterwards during the, the post-debrief. So for new rescuers, new EMS personnel, uh, new or hopeful nursing students aspiring um, to those careers, you learn to uh, have a good poker face, especially in a, in a hospital situation or long-term care, because uh, you work a code, it doesn't go well, you take your five or ten minutes, do what you need to do, and you, you're, you're back seeing your, your other patients, and of course you, you're not allowed to talk about it to your, to your patients, because it's a privacy concern, even though they know what, what, what went on. Most uh, patients know when they hear code blue, uh, in a certain area, and they hear footsteps running and carts moving and things going up and down. They, they, you know, people aren't aren't dumb. They they understand, and they also understand that uh, the healthcare professionals aren't allowed to talk about it to them. So you, as a rescuer, need to realize that critical incident stress and post traumatic stress disorder are real issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, for those who are working either professionally paid or professionally volunteered in programs where that, this is a high possibility, such as a volunteer firefighter, search and rescue, the agencies I've worked with and dealt with have had um, employee assistance programs or they would bring in someone to do a debriefing uh, for a situation. And that debriefing is actually uh, broken into uh, two or three uh, sub-debriefings. What I mean is the actual rescuers who are in on the hands-on rescue, they get a, a debriefing all to themselves. The secondary role, so like a supportive role, they get a, a general debriefing. Then you, what you would have, you would have the um, third type of rescuer who might be doing traffic control or... Uh, doing uh, equipment or whatnot, somebody who's not in direct line of care with it, uh, resuscitation. So, uh, 
and they're all specialized debriefings for those individuals because you don't want to mix uh, someone who didn't see anything in with the person who dealt with a traumatic situation that didn't go well because that can cause uh, that person that wasn't a witness to uh, to have some effects as well of the critical incident stress. PTSD is a is for just as a basic um, overview is a serious anxiety disorder where trauma um, is a natural emotional reaction to a disturbing experiences. Okay, so this is very normal, and it can be. It's not always the military people or the first responders who get PTSD. You can have uh, PTSD in any walks of life. Uh, a survivor of a sexual assault or a rape can definitely have signs of PTSD, and um, as well as someone who's witnessed uh, a car accident and there was a death at the scene. So witnesses can have this type of um, PTSD as well. Counseling and talking to someone is so important. Do not bottle up any of the feelings um, that one may have after dealing with an emergency. Um, there's such a thing as called cumulative stress or cumulative PTSD, where um, the individual, the rescuer, you know, feels that but the first two or three times there was no issue, even though it was a bad outcome, they didn't have any side effects. But maybe that fourth time was, was what uh, just was enough. Enough was enough. So there's all kinds of different signs and symptoms for critical incident stress. Um, there's actually NP and PTSD, there's different signs and symptoms as well. PTSD generally appears within three months of the event, but sometimes they might not appear for years. Um, Critical incident stress is more um, sudden. Let's just put it that way. Um, and they, this individual may have confusion, may, may have guilt for the, the code or the scenario not going well. Could be angry at themselves or angry at the situation. Uh, behaviors off kilter for this individual. Appetite could be up or down. Um, there may be more um, use of alcohol or drugs as a way of coping mechanism. With PTSD, the stages can be very similar to critical incident stress um, in the sense that uh, flashbacks, nightmares, um, hallucinatory uh, flashbacks, and what I mean by that is, uh, certain smells can bring the person back to um, that situation in time. Uh, specifically, if um, if it was a car accident or the person was in the military and had a even a simple, you know, no such word is simple, but a, a tour uh, overseas or a tour where uh, even on their own soil where there's high possibility of, uh, of stress because of the nature of the tour. So um, diesel fumes, fuel fumes for uh, some military people because a lot of the bigger uh, military vehicles use diesel, especially in the Army. 
the different armies around the world. So for some people, smelling those diesel exhaust can be a trigger uh, or, or hearing a helicopter because of uh, the exposure that this individual may have occurred uh, in the military. So one of the big things is we're not weak by having CIS or PTSD. That is not a sign of weakness. Um, that, that myth has been long been dispelled. Um, and the old, 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 old treatment for someone with PTSD or critical incident stress has been found to be more detrimental. So um, I can't really go into any, any greater detail for that as I'm not a specialist in the treatment of PTSD other than to seek professional mental health whether that's with counseling, psychiatry, psychology. And know that you are not alone. Um, so if you did everything you could do as a responder, and at the end of the day, it was still not a positive outcome, then you know that you did everything within your power to assist and to make the, the person as, as uh, stable as possible while under your care. So as I round back up to the soft skills for a rescuer, giving the person dignity, respect, empathy, support. We can't always give privacy at, due to the nature of the uh, rescue. If somebody's shirt has to be cut off for CPR and defibrillation purposes, that's you know, we can't always provide privacy, but we can always provide dignity. I, I saw a rescue some years back where this was at a grocery store. A, um, a person had gone on cardiac arrest. So what the employees did was they took the uh, products that were on carts and the carts had wheels. They made a barricade around the rescuer and the, uh, and the casualty until the paramedics arrived and were able to put him on the stretcher. So that's a way of providing a little bit of privacy and a lot of dignity to that, to that person and to any of the family that were there. So I can almost imagine some of the comments, and by all means, feel free to reach out. Um, you know, we're here to save lives, not you know, kiss your butt or anything like that or whatever terms you want to use. No, we're not. We're here to give the best quality care while they're under our um, time. And if that means listening to someone talk for five or six minutes, then that's a form of support. And for uh, that nonverbal communication, the soft skills, that is enough to help someone talk. They're nervous. They're anxious. Um, and just by having letting the person... Um, ramble on it's not harming you it's not harming the care that you're giving the person they are able to express their concerns in a safe way and after you know your care is done you've hand over the casualty to the next uh, advanced care person you can relay some of the information to the receiving uh, medics that you know they were very talkative about X, Y, and Z, and and were concerned about this, that, and this other. And that way, um, 
it just helps keep the conversation flowing. And it brings me to another corner of first aid that I'm not sure if is available in everyone's listening uh, area. And that's psychological or mental health first aid. Um, highly recommend that course if you have it in your area. Um, I, I don't teach it. I know a few people who do, and that's they enjoy it. Um, it's, it's a lot of how to listen and how to um, give care, self-care. So the person taking the psychological first aid course is not there to diagnose. They're there to listen, to offer reassurance, and to be non-judgmental. So those kind of courses are very, very good for uh, responders, such as yourselves that are listening. And there's other courses if you're interested in the mental health side of things besides the CIS and the PTSD. There is suicide intervention skills. Um, Here in North America, I've taken one here in Canada. It's a two-day suicide first aid course, and it's basically how to intervene before the professional uh, mental health providers arrive. So... uh, how best to handle a situation, keep the person talking, and find out as much as you can while you're waiting for the um, the professional mental health uh, crisis individuals to to arrive and to take over. Lastly, as I want to wrap this up, suicide. I know the word can be taboo for some people. The word can conjure up lots of images in your head. Many years ago, when I first started in EMS and and medic training, just saying the word suicide to someone who was depressed was was thought to be um, wrong because it could give them ideas. The thinking now is they have already had those ideas. You're just acknowledging it. And it may open them up more to talk. Uh, and by all means, this is my own personal experience here in North America. Where you are in your little corner of the world could be different. Okay, uh, I can only speak from the experiences I've gone through and the training I've gone through. So if your training is any bit different, go with your local protocols by all means. This is not meant to supersede any local training or local protocols. But I think the biggest thing we can do as rescuers, as volunteers, is to have, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We're to listen twice as much as we're to talk. So uh, that's a very old proverb, and I stand by it. Um, So there you go. I want to thank you for joining me again today uh, on this podcast. I haven't decided what the title is going to be yet, but we shall see. It might just be April the 6th, 2022. Uh, My goal is to try to catch up on a few of the lapsed episodes uh, over the last couple of months. I'm going to have some time off from work uh, recuperating myself from a medical issue, and I should have more time available to respond to your emails, your comments. I am on Twitter, um, 2020basics. first aid basics whatever is posted for my email account so by all means feel free to reach out if there's a particular topic 
in EMS, first aid, first response, EMR, whatever it is you have, please, by all means, ask me. I did have a couple of questions uh, from some rescuers in Australia. If you're asking me about drugs, please try to use the chemical name, not the, not the brand name, because the brand names vary from country to country. So if you're asking me a particular question about a certain drug, uh, try to find out the chemical name, if at all possible. Um, and I will try to look that up for you and get back to you via email as quickly as possible. So I thank you again for your time. Stay well. Stay hydrated. Good morning, good day, good evening, good night. Whatever time it is you're listening to this podcast of all things first aid. I'm your host, Jay. Uh, today's podcast is going to be a little bit different as in the sense that uh, I'm not going to be relaying immediate medical care, first aid care, or, uh, or anything like that. I want to specifically talk about COVID-19. I am recovering from COVID-19. I can't remember the variant BA2 or whatever it is. They called it the stealth variant because uh, it's very sneaky. Um, everyone gets different signs and symptoms. The person I got it from was had a much milder case. Recovery time was a lot faster. Um, there are lots of factors variables that uh, will determine recovery and things like that and that's sort of what I want to go into here Um, the information is all over the the web about the different uh, signs and symptoms so I won't go into that specifics other than that they're very um, wide and broad and not everyone gets them. Um, I, my signs and symptoms came on rather suddenly. I tested negative twice in, in three days and the fourth day I was positive because there was uh, noticeable changes in my, uh, in my symptoms. I mean, uh, I had what I would consider a moderate fever. I, um, don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Uh, found breathing to be difficult at times, and that's being very generous. Um, a lot of coughing, a lot of congestion, a lot of phlegm. I didn't have the dry cough. I had the very uh, wet uh, phlegm, product, what we call a productive cough. And uh, Energy. There was none. There still is none, and I've been working on this now over three weeks. Uh, technically, they say after, for Canada, they say after uh, ten days of being uh, asymptomatic, we are considered to be uh, um, not at a high risk for um, transmission. Uh, now that being said, there, you know there is always that possibility. And the other thing has to do with fee- being fever-free for 24 hours without the use of, of antipyretic, 
So like a, 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 a acetaminophen or something like that. Now, that being said, I did have a fever earlier this week for just a day. So it did come back and it left. Am I still infectious? I don't know. All the, the most recent criteria says I'm not. Uh, I'm still wearing a mask. I'm still very cautious where I go in public. I uh, I don't go places unless I, I need to for for groceries or fuel or whatnot. Uh, so, as first aiders, first responders, anyone dealing with the public uh, who are already in a um, immunocompromised situation, and what I mean by that is if they're in a motor vehicle collision and you you know they they have other underlying medical issues you know they they're at a higher risk for uh not just covid but other infections as well so you as responders really need to take do do care and diligence in making sure that you protect not only yourself but your casualties um wearing a mask whatever your local uh jurisdiction government recommends as being the most protection for you and for the casualties and people you're you're dealing with. I, I tend to wear, uh, before I got COVID, I wore three masks um, and I can barely tolerate wearing one now if I'm out in public. So I just have to be very cautious as to uh, where I go and, and how, how much I'm out in public. Um, I contracted this particular uh, variant from someone in my household, so it had nothing to do with hand washing or uh, being in community awareness or community uh, COVID. Uh, the person in my household got it from someone um, that they were that they knew, and they were asymptomatic at the time, so no symptoms. And um, but this variant spreads very quickly, and um, it can have lasting, lingering effects. Um, I'm being assessed later in the next few days for secondary pneumonia due to the COVID just because of the shortness of breath and the um, some other symptoms I'm having that are not getting any better. Um, I, I'm fortunate in the sense that I have access to some medical equipment such as a SPO2 monitor and, and things like that. So I've been monitoring my my own oxygen levels. Uh, the only thing I wish I had access to at home was an oxygen tank because some days I wish I could I could really use one. Um, just a little give you a little context and background. I'm in my mid fifties. I'm probably about twenty to thirty pounds overweight. Um, not exactly the you know exquisite fit of health, but in my younger days, I I was very athletic and um, would go out of my way to you know either go for a long walk or a long uh, bike bicycle ride or or swim or whatnot. So it wasn't the fact that I didn't have muscle memory and, and things like that. Um, in fact, pre pre COVID. Um, I had a, heart, a resting heart rate of 54 to 55, and that is very normal in someone who's either athletic or previously athletic. 
Um, I can't say that now, though. So with my background and some uh, present current medical conditions, um, this is going to be a longer road than, let's say, an 18-year-old who, uh, who has no other underlying conditions. Everyone's a little bit different. Everyone really is. Uh, and I'm bringing this to you as the people who, who listen to these podcasts and, and get something out of this, whether it's uh, the soft skills that I did last time or it's the first aid aspect of it. Uh, what I want you to take out of this particular podcast episode is uh, this is not to be trifled with. Um, I'm not saying that with any kind of hype, you know, scare tactics or anything like that. It's just this is not a common cold or a common flu. Um, I was telling my, my family physician a couple of weeks ago, I've actually had true influenza and pneumonia. Uh, the pneumonia was secondary due due to the influenza, and uh, I, and that was twenty eight years ago. Uh, I would much rather have that than this, and that's pretty sad if you've ever had pneumonia. For to hear me say that because pneumonia is uh, not something that should be played with either. Um, so if in you know anyone who has contracted or if you are unfortunately enough one of those people to contract COVID uh, listen to your um, health provider's advice whether it be a physician, nurse practitioner um, get plenty of rest, don't overdo yourself the big thing is loss of appetite and I'm still uh, dealing with that as well Um, and it's kind of an oxymoron to say Go ahead and eat whenever you don't feel like eating because you don't feel like moving. And it takes every bit of energy you have to even um, even just go to the washroom. So make sure you stay very well hydrated. Um, someone who is ill like this and may have other underlying conditions or at a age demographics, uh, if you're not drinking enough fluid, uh, you can get kidney damage because your kidneys are not uh, doing what they're supposed to do. Not to mention the fact that you're higher risk for dehydration. And that has its own whole host of other issues as well. Um, so drink plenty of fluids. Um, whatever your physician or, or healthcare provider recommends for uh, nutrients and, and vitamins and things like that. Um, I've started taking to drinking uh, more juice and more um, electrolytes just because I know um, that's not something I drink on a regular basis but just because of the fever and the no appetite I needed to keep some of my uh, my electrolytes up and uh, it didn't take as much effort to drink a glass of juice as it did to eat a sandwich or something like that My employer has been really good about uh, giving me time off for this, um, and only it's not just me. There's other employees where I work 
who have or have had COVID and uh, the exhaustion, uh, what what the, the is noted as being long co- long haul COVID or long COVID, uh, where the exhaustion, the signs and symptoms of the COVID are lasting longer than the typical 10 to 14 days, um, especially with the shortness of breath, the fatigue. I, I've stopped teaching first aid for the month of May. Uh, I've reached out to all of my other uh, instructors I work with, and uh, I've said, just take me off for the month of May, and I'll see what June brings. Because um, one of the, the side effects of the COVID, besides being shortness of breath and fatigue, is feeling faint when you're doing most anything that takes exertion. And that would be kind of embarrassing to have your first aid instructor pass out in the classroom. So, uh, when it wasn't necessary. I'm going to make this a fairly short uh, podcast today. As you can probably hear, I am uh, having some difficulty keeping uh, my breath at a fairly decent pattern without going too short of breath. But I did want to reach out to to you as a listening audience and say thank you very much for all that you've done. Uh, and as soon as I am uh, more on the mend and uh, more able to go into a, a deeper podcast, I'm going to be off for a little while. You all have access to my email and uh, Twitter account. Feel free to reach out uh, if you wish for any suggestions. Um, No matter what part of the world you're in, uh, first aid is first aid. Whether you call it one thing or, or, or whatever, it's still first aid. You're still applying emergency care to someone who is in need. Okay. Take care, stay well, and stay hydrated.